This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Amy Rose Fowle is a mother, a farmer, and a big thinker. As the executive director and founder of the multifaceted Virginia Free Farm at Spotted Pig Hauler in Kent's Store, Virginia, she's looking to reimagine the food shed of her world and ours. As spring takes hold and the warm growing season greens our northern hemisphere gardens and farms, Amy Rose sees a greater food shed model within reach. I am so pleased to be speaking with you, Amy Rose. Welcome. Hi, Kwai. Tanuki Wumwongzi. Wumini, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. That was uh, Western Abenaki. My family is Wabanaki, which is the Great Council of Tribes from our New England and Maritime Canada, and my family is originally from Vermont and Quebec. If you were to give me a mission statement for your work as it relates to plants and cultivating and growing in this world, what would that mission statement be for a woman who is an executive director, a mother, uh, an indigenous seed keeper, and more? Oh, so to distill that down, our mission in a nutshell is cultivating food security and transforming our food shed. Uh, We really are looking forward to um, focusing in on and dialing in more tightly that vital facilitation of more local food production in the community. Um, And this is something that something of a second, third or fourth career for me, but it is absolutely my life's purpose and I will do this work fighting for change and for food justice and system reform, probably until the day I die. We've already brought up a couple of really interesting threads to me in terms of who you are and and what your life uh, consists of and includes. I'd love to have you take us back a little bit to where you were born and raised and who were the people and places and plants that originally grew you. So I grew up in Erie, Pennsylvania on the lake uh, there. And we had, so there's, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Erie, Pennsylvania. It's um, kind of a lakeside uh, peninsula and there's a lot of nature there. And we also had a uh, cabin in the Allegheny National Forest just right outside, literally 10 feet from the property line was the Alleghenies. And so that was great. A lot of hunting and fishing, a lot of foraging. The Pennsylvania neighborhood that I grew up in, all the old ladies, the matriarchs, the grandmothers of the families, they were growing, including my own. Um, And they cooked from scratch a lot. I grew up in a house that most everything was cooked from scratch. Not a lot came out of boxes, bottles, and cans. We grew a lot of our own stuff, uh, traded, my grandmother um, traded with people across the alleyways, and we hunted and fished a lot and preserved excess food. I learned a lot from them, and I got to see that, like, being able to grow your own food and forage your own food, hunt and fish, that there was independence and power and security in that ability that I feel it comes from the ability to feed yourself in a real and nourishing way. And it's been lost a lot in recent generations, a lot of places by a lot of communities. And that breaks my heart. And it's funny because I really never appreciated it until maybe, I don't know, 35 years old. And um, so now that I'm in my 40s, I want to teach everyone how to do that. You're a mom of three boys. And how old are, what what are their age ranges, Amy Rose? Three, yes. I have three little boys. They are 11, nine, and six. So I have my hands full. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. (laughs) Do you find that the urge in yourself to cultivate this kind of lifestyle and these kind of values correlated with becoming a mom? Uh, Yes, actually. The, oh man, there's so much I want to say. So one of the things that actually spurred me into this is after my second child. Were you already living in Virginia when you had your babies? Yes. Um, Yeah. So I was living in Virginia, working at a hospital. I used to be a nurse. And um, so I had a good job and it was a good life. But with two children in daycare, it's just really not sensible to 
be working. And the daycare was twice of twice what our mortgage was. It was outrageous. Um, so that's when my path into the garden really took shape, if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, I was a mother expecting my second son and I worked at the hospital and it was just, it made sense to not pretty much give up my entire paycheck to a daycare for someone else to raise my child. It was really sad. Um, so that's when I started a small farming business and I was growing and doing seeds and um, goat milk soap. So I, I want to take us back um, because I, I want to hear much more about like where you were that got you to Virginia. When you were growing up in Erie, are you of indigenous descent on both sides? In, and was that part of growing up or did that come to you later? Oh, okay. So no, my father is Native American and my mother's family are recent immigrants from uh, Hungary and che the Czech Republic by way of Austria. And they kind of... Uh, got out of Dodge before um, World War II. Okay, so I I had an awesome childhood and my parents really were kind of, they were very ecologically uh, conscious even in the early 80s. Um, and I grew up, I grew up in a house floor to ceiling shelves upon shelves with preserved food that was either grown by us or grown by my aunt and uncle or someone else that was local and a freezer full of venison always and there's no boys in my family so usually I was daddy's little buddy to go hunting and uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I got to go fishing and go hunting all the time it was really great I had a beautiful idyllic um, childhood and we weren't rich like financial sense rich but we were really rich in the traditional sense, like the native traditional sense of the more you give away, the wealthier you are. Like, I really remember, I have vivid memories of my mother standing over a hot sink full of water, blanching vegetables and peeling and canning endless hours in a humid kitchen, canning and canning and canning and drying. And then, so after childhood, I did the, um, Unfortunately, I didn't appreciate any of that when I was younger. And I totally jumped on that treadmill of capitalism along with everybody else in Generation X um, with college. And then I enlisted in the army and then I went into work and eventually finding a way to pull it all together into a few businesses that kind of built up into the point where I am now. Um, and since I always yearned to be returning to that simpler way um, of being, and those successful business uh, ventures actually allowed me to found Virginia Free Farm and really step into that dream of doing something more valuable in the community, if that makes sense. Uh, and it was so it was easy for me. I mean, farming is not easy. Don't take that the wrong way. It is brutal, difficult, hard work, and it takes perseverance and wherewithal. You know, I mean, it just seemed like the easy choice to make. If we think about it and go back enough generations, we can find that most of our ancestors were seed savers and seed keepers. And we had the implicit ability and skills to feed ourselves. And it really pains me that we lost that somewhere along the way and really have been kind of fed into this system, no pun intended, of just big ag and big pharma trading us back and forth between one another. We are nothing but a commodity for the powers that be. And so I want to use my good fortune in being able to have this life and founding the free farm to get others to be able to feed themselves and remember where we came from, remember the ways of our ancestors, um, and use that gift of seeds that they've given us across generations to really start a new system um, because the system that we're in right now was built for a reason and it's working exactly how it was supposed to be working. And I actually have a hard time saying things that are hard for others to hear and I really had to learn to step into my power as far as what wielding these words means for other people, but it's it has been built for a reason and it's food apartheid. 
and it's centered on kind of the manifest destiny um, ideals and it leaves, leaves everyone out and that's by design. And I think we can change it. It's, I don't know how, I don't have all the answers, but we are starting to build a framework with all of our different programmatic elements for the free farm that has to be done in concert because it's a very intersectional topic. You can't just say, oh, I'm gonna create food security and then just give people food. That doesn't work. That's just the same as every other food pantry across the country. We've been having them for how long? And that's not the solution. But we need to be able to learn how to listen. This sounds so cheesy and you can laugh at me if you want, but we really need to figure out how to listen to what's already inside of us. We can listen to those ancestors whispering across the generations and pull that knowledge that they've left us in the form of seeds right back out of our toolkit as humans. We have everything at our fingertips and it's innate and inherent in us. We evolved in nature. We didn't evolve in cities independent of the fields and the streams and all of that. We have all of this ability to feed ourselves. We just need to relearn how to do it. And I feel like the people that have the traditional ecological knowledge to pass it along to others have a lot of work to do. I, I love and believe in every single thing you're saying. And um, I, I too agree that the traditional ecological knowledge, first of all, for those of us here in North America, um, the traditional ecological knowledge of the people who co-evolved on this place um, and with these environments. But as you know, as your mother is testament to, um, all of us can go back in our ancestry and find land-based people somewhere. So it's, it's inherent in all of us. You are among the fortunate to have actually witnessed it as a child growing up. And so it's closer for you than, than others, which I think is a great uh, gift and power for you to share. It is absolutely not cheesy in any way to say we need to be listening to these whisperings that I think, you know, many of us, especially those of us in relationship with plants and soil, we hear them and we don't always know exactly what it's saying. So how do you get to Virginia and were you trained as a nurse in your uh, stay in the army or, or I'm not sure which branch of the military you were in? So I actually went to George Mason for a couple of years and it's right outside Washington, D.C. in Northern Virginia. I don't know how often you've ever come across a recruiter or if you know their, uh, their tactics, but they'll tell you. Uh, don't get me wrong. I absolutely love the military. It was one of the best things I ever did. So the recruiters will tell you everything. It's going to be this great cloak and dagger, amazing experience. You're going to go all over the place. And I ended up in the army. Uh, <laughs> so I enlisted for four years and mostly stayed on the East Coast, Fort Meade, Fort Eustis. And now yeah, I think I was a Southerner at heart. You guys can't get rid of me <laughs> down here in Virginia. I actually love the weather here. And I don't think I would ever move north again. It's a beautiful, beautiful landscape and countryside. So you get there, you are a nurse, you're working, you're expecting your second child, you are overwhelmed with this like impossible false question of, do I follow my career or do I take care of my babies or do I, like, what makes the most emotional and financial sense? And you have the same answer that many, many, many women make, which is, uh, to to figure out a way outside of a normal career path to raise your kids yourself. And you start one of your first businesses. Tell us about these successful business ventures that set you up for the capacity to then move into the work that is clearly calling you. Yeah, it was, um, oh man, it was a really emotional and very hard time in my life. I am probably the definition of a workaholic. I worked two full-time jobs as a nurse during the day and as a firefighter and paramedic at night for almost a decade of my life. So when I had to make the call, it was such a hard decision. I, I had a really hard time, honestly, I had a really hard time with it for several years after. I still have a hard time with it sometimes because I 
being such a workaholic, I kind of identified myself. Like that was me. That was who I was. I had no other identity outside of I am a caregiver. I am a helper. And so, yeah, it was really hard. I had an identity crisis, to be honest with you, about what am I if I am just a mom? Which sounds crazy because so many people would kill to just be able to just be and be there with their children. And it is a wonderful, noble thing. But I had a really, really hard time with it. And so I, I didn't know what to do with myself, honestly. I'm such a busybody, I couldn't sit still. And so from that was born the goat milk soap business, well, the, the farmer's market stand, which it was just kind of walking around money. And did you have your own goats? Uh, no, actually, no. I bought the milk okay. at that point in time. We had chickens and turkeys and ducks and all that sort of stuff. So I uh, sold eggs and meat and, oh, and did meat rabbits. I have 100 to 150 rabbits at any given time. So, um, yeah, and I processed everything myself on farm. So I would process chickens, you know, just in between whenever I had free time, I would process birds or rabbits. Um and do produce and eggs. And then one day I had an epiphany while I was standing at the farmer's market. And I'm like, why am I selling this pepper for 50 cents when I can sell the seeds inside it for five times that or more? And the seed business was born. <laughs> I actually still, <laughs> that was, I mean, that was like 10 years ago. Uh, so right now we, um, we have a, uh, a store for the, an online store for the Virginia Free Farm. So it actually functions as a fundraiser for the farm, realistically. None of that, it's not, you know, we're a nonprofit. So none of that is really anything substantial. We do take okay. donations and whatnot, but, okay. but it made a lot more sense than selling produce retail. Then I kind of wised up and got out of the farmer's market game or game because it was just so many hours packing and preparing and then being there, whether you don't know whether it's going to rain or, you know, there's um, too many variables and it's so much time. Um, well, I actually had a rain day. I was, at, I was at the market and it started to rain. So we had to pack up everything and leave. And um, I went downtown Richmond with a car full of boxes and produce and eggs and seeds stopped at a couple of bougie restaurants and actually sold everything within like half an hour it was awesome yeah so i got smart really quick and started collecting up chefs and a couple of specialty grocery stores in the region and i had a triangle i would do from fredericksburg to richmond to charlottesville so on like between monday and wednesdays i would send out emails with what all i had and kind of collect up my itinerary of all right, I'm hitting these places in Fredericksburg, I'm hitting these places in Richmond and delivering all of their orders. So everything was sold. I knew that everything was going to be taken um, before I left the house. Wow, it, nice. It lent a lot of sanity to my life um, as far as farming goes. That's definitely the way to go. Farmers markets are great and it's fun and it's an amazing social atmosphere, but uh, there's a lot of risk involved and expenses with just labor and time and all of that for an uncertain return because you don't know whether you're going to sell everything. This is Cultivating Place. We're speaking today with farmer and food shed reimaginer Amy Rose Full of the Virginia Free Farm. Their work cultivates food security and transforms the food shed. We'll be right back for more. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. It is so wonderfully, abundantly, greenly spring here in my part of the world, and I am taken by Amy Rose's describing how growing up in Pennsylvania among extended family and community, they were not, quote, rich in the conventional sense, but they were rich in family and good food and access to wild places and the skills and knowledge to live with this food and these places. What is, quote, rich in the conventional sense? Is it how many dollars you have in your bank account? How many square feet in your house? How many shoes in your closet? 
What does rich mean to you or me? I, for one, really like Amy Rose's family creed that the more you give away, the wealthier you are. And maybe I would add, the more we have eyes to see and appreciate the abundance around us in our human communities, in our gardens, in our wild spaces, and the more we share this vision, the wealthier we all are. I know. I know. I am a bleeding heart idealist. But come on. That's rich, isn't it? We're speaking this week with farmer and nonprofit founder Amy Rose Fole of the Virginia Free Farm in Kent's Store, Virginia. Her multifaceted work integrates growing and distributing of fresh food to communities in need of it, teaching and mentoring of young farmers and growers, saving and sharing of seed, facilitating community and tribal community gardens, and changing the world. As we come back, Amy Rose shares more on how she moved from Army veteran to nurse to mother to founder of the Virginia Free Farm. A couple of years ago, my gardening habit grew and grew out of control, to be honest with you. And it probably is also born out of my probably pathological workaholic uh, situation here. And... (laughs) So the garden got so enormous that there was absolutely no way to, and we had hundreds and hundreds of birds in the yard, that there was literally no way to preserve or make use of all this food. So we started giving it away and very quickly, actually, from the minute I started having to give it away to neighbors and to the food banks in our like immediate area here, I don't know. I'm one of those people where if I get something in my head, it's going to happen. So I immediately went online, did a quick, quick search. How do I need to organize this? Organized it with the state corporation commission, sent all of my stuff into the IRS. And like two weeks later, we were a 501c3 nonprofit and ready to rock. And everything was set up, website, social media was all changed, so it was appropriate. Uh, Website was changed, and we started um, aggregating other individuals and recruiting other individuals in the area to help um, with the application of our programs that I had in my head. But one woman can't change the world. (laughs) So instead of waiting for the Titanic to turn, I got all these people to help me, and we hired a tugboat to turn this thing around. (laughs) And so... Now, as of right now, today, describe Virginia Free Farm, what it actually physically is, and then what it does oh, man. as well. Are you ready for this? <laughs> this is long. So, yeah. Okay. So, I will say that it might be a little bit big for a lot of people's tastes, and it might sound absolutely outrageous, but we have found that kind of like visioning for reimagining anything needs to be big and bold. Like I'm sure that 10 years before the light bulb was widespread, nobody thought that anything like that would ever exist. But here it is, and here we are talking to each other through Zoom on the computer, just, you know, (laughs) 100 years later. So we are attempting to reimagine our food shed in a more just way, but we... We're definitely working on the, the details of that, that vision from day to day, literally. So there's, you know, like, there's a few unimpeachable truths that have to happen or non-negotiable. It's got to be bottom up because top down doesn't work. I mean, and we do some top down stuff too. We get people started um, by giving the food away, but we also facilitate from the ground up and, um, you know, like a grassroots growing for the community and whatnot and get people self-sufficient. So we do equitable food access where we produce thousands of pounds of food and give all of that away. Um, Because as you know, I used to be a nurse. So I feel like nutrition is absolutely essential to change. It's essential to social change and in the way of like economics, where if you are ill, you're not gonna be going to school or work as well. Um, For children, you're not gonna be learning as well. So important, that's vital. So we do the equitable food access. We do community garden facilitation, where each spring we do 
hundreds of vegetable plants. I can't wait until this year. We have a 40 foot or 40 more feet of greenhouse to be growing in. It's going to be even better. So we do hundreds and hundreds of vegetables and plants. We uh, give away tons and tons of seed packets to reach because we can't reach that many plates just from our property alone. There's only so much land here and so many hours in the day. So to be able to get our uh, webcast or the netcast wider, we try to fill up community gardens in central Virginia and get people growing for themselves. And a lot of those people do grow for mutual aid, which has been absolutely fantastic. Um, seeing those people and those plants that came from us do so much more good than we could ever do here. Right. That's right. awesome. Um, so we do that. We have land access initiative. I was able to get a few more acres next to me and hopefully we will be getting another adjoining eight um, very soon. Wow. So how many acres do you have all Just told 26, right now? But not all of it's under cultivation. Um, I mean, because there is, we have a little camping area that we allow people to come here and camp. Um, that's part of our um, income stream for the nonprofit. And so people can enjoy themselves and play with the pigs. The pigs are friendly and highly entertaining. And um, so we do the land access in initiative uh, because I was witness to some very disturbing um, conversations regarding the ability of our BIPOC family members and uh, LGBT community to feel safe. And one of our volunteers who is a queer woman actually said to me, you know, I volunteer at other farms and I would never tell them or never come out of the closet because I wouldn't feel safe if they knew that about me. That really broke my heart. What really broke my heart the most is, you know, and this is, I don't know. Um, I don't know why I feel this responsibility to everything and everyone. It's just how I was raised. But as a veteran, we're we're bound to protect Americans. The thought of another American not feeling safe on American soil hurts my heart. It shouldn't be that way. So we want everybody to um, have access to even just the therapeutic nature of gardening and communing with the environment. Um, I think that's so important, especially for our like black and indigenous people We're the original farmers here. And I mean, my many great grandmothers past were, they fed millions with meticulously curated food forests and effortlessly wrestling life from the soil here. And then after this nation was, uh, was founded, millions of nameless, landless black brothers and sisters were forced here and they fed the nation and now we have this horrible system where we can't feed ourselves. I don't know whether you've ever experienced commodity foods. Uh, there, I, my grandmother had the, uh, the black and white boxes um, that were, had been, they're disgusting. They're, they're horrible and not nutritious. Uh -huh. Disgusting foods disgusting. Um, no. that I don't know what they are like anymore. This was like almost 40 years ago, you know, that I remember my, my childhood memories. But I remember commodity foods being in my grandmother's kitchen that are distributed to Native peoples normally. And that's, that's no kind of life. And it's purposeful. You control the food, you control the people. That was literally what was done. I mean, when they burnt corn stores, seven miles worth of corn that belonged to the Haudenosaunee, and they brought the nation to their knees. And it still goes on in a way in different areas yep, of codes here does. in the U.S. We need, to, we need to fix it. And I think we can if we can organize ourselves. Yep. And I think your model of being um, regionally based and multifaceted is one of the models that, you know, especially in COVID times, come March 2020, when people realized that, you know, shipments weren't arriving and large ag couldn't respond uh, flexibly, uh, all of a sudden this became a point of discussion and a meaningful point of discussion for people who had never seen the larger food system illustrated in that way. 
And then there it was. There wasn't flour. There wasn't toilet paper. There wasn't, um, you know, because it was panicking and people were hoarding and it couldn't get in in time. Um, But that's not the case if you are a much more flexible, smaller, and local uh, or at least regionally based distributor of a product you yourself grow. Yeah. So our, I don't know, where are you based out of? I'm Northern California, but my daughter, uh, I have family all over the country. We'll just say. Oh, that's right. I do remember. That's why you're three, three hours behind. Yes. Okay. So I don't know what it was like there, but here um, it was actually on the news. Our food pantry lines were a mile long and some of the food pantries actually stopped distributing food at all. And they were being distributed through the schools, but that left a lot of people out. And then some of them were only distributing to people that qualified for SNAP at the time. But that also leaves a huge gap in uh, the food or food security because 20, even before COVID, 27% of all food insecure households were, um, were not qualifying for SNAP. So that's a big problem. And I've seen it firsthand. Um, <clears throat> So what we started trying to do to meet these people where they were and bridge that gap, we're getting as many seeds and plants out as possible. And then before those plants started growing, distributing as much food as possible to those people, we started rounding up roosters from, because there's always a million roosters that nobody wants. And it's much more sensible for us to take them and process them and get them to people that need them than for them to be turned loose and eaten by a fox or what have you. And um, so we started getting all that out. We got as many seeds and plants out as we can. Then we started actually hatching. We started a hatchery in the basement and started providing chickens and ducklings to anybody that wanted them, that wanted to have some measure of food security. Because also the hatcheries were sold out and the feed stores that normally have chicks, they didn't have them either, unfortunately. So we um, started a learning library for sustainable agriculture education. So you can go to our website and access that. We're constantly putting new files in. It's just kind of a matter of time constraints and whatnot. We started our poultry. We actually this year are gonna be having um, satellite farms. We've got four people ready. Each one of them is about an hour away from us. And so we are gonna get them set up. They're gonna have their own Virginia Free Farm, and we're going to get them set up with our um, kind of our model for getting volunteers and working with lo- other local nonprofits to get and distribute that food. That was actually key for us um, because when I started this, I was I learned a lot in the last few years. I actually was trying to do everything myself from production packing to delivery, and it was just not sustainable. Um, and I'm not a very good delegator of responsibility. So I learned the hard way through burnout that that's not sustainable and not a good long-term model. So we got a lot more people growing. And I think this whole, this whole proving ground that we're going to have this year to get new farms set up under the name and doing the same thing to be able to uh, reach a wider audience of Virginia I think this will be key because I really believe what we like what we do here is not hard and it's not I feel like it's not earth shaking or groundbreaking or anything like that and it's simple and it can be replicated anywhere. That's I think what the most important thing is because we really could do it anywhere. And we have very little waste from it as well, which is really great. Usually the um produce is picked, packed and distributed within 24 hours the most, usually it's same day. Usually it's picked and then immediately goes out to the community. This is Cultivating Place. We're speaking today with Amy Rose Bowl, the founder and executive director of the Virginia Free Farm. Their work cultivates food security and in doing so helps transform the food shed. We'll be right back for more, stay with us. So thinking out loud this week, here are two other things Amy Rose says in the course of our conversation. She indicates that she could not follow a, quote, normal career path, end quote, and also that 
quote, one woman cannot save the world, end quote. While I know very few creative, caring, visionary people who have followed any boxed version of a, quote, normal career path, end quote, I would say that Amy Rose is fairly accurate in her description of not having followed any such path. And she's wrong in her second statement. She might need help. Who doesn't? But she is certainly one woman making remarkable strides on saving the world and growing it better. We're speaking this week with farmer and nonprofit founder Amy Rose Full of the Virginia Free Farm in Kent's Store, Virginia. As we come back, Amy Rose shares more about the intricacies and branches and outreach efforts of all that the Virginia Free Farm does and hopes to do. Well, we do have some individual families and we don't do income checks or anything like that. It's if you need, you say you need help, you can have help. And then um, on top of that, most of the food is actually distributed through other uh, organizations like the Catholic Workers. They work with a lot of our undocumented brothers and sisters here and um, because they were hit hard when COVID first started and everything got shut down. And unfortunately, contrary to what a lot of people want to believe, they are not taking our social services or gaming the system. They can't qualify for them. And so unfortunately, our local food bank actually does not distribute unless you have gone to social services and gone through the steps to sign up for SNAP, but they have, they are not able to do that. And since they don't have documentation, they kind of got lost or forgotten about, which is absolutely criminal to me, but that's a discussion for another day. (laughs) But it's hard, it's really heartbreaking because I mean, the kids go to school with my kids, you know? So thankfully there is amazing people like the Catholic workers here in the area. So basically we would pack, we've got a big board in the barn and it's got all these sections on it and each section is like a different organization's name like food not bombs richmond or food not bombs charlottesville or um little flower catholic workers or lending hands and it's how many people or families are in each need to be fed in each one of these organizations and so every wednesday and sunday we go down the list and food gets packed and distributed and we'll call or text them to come pick up and um, that way a lot of it goes out and we don't have to worry about the logistics of getting it to the individual families and they already have that system set in place for themselves and so that is a huge help to us and that's why i want to get these satellite farms off the ground so that they don't go through the same pitfalls that i did of trying to do it all all myself that was just not realistic and uh, not healthy for anyone. But also there's organizations like Blessing Warriors in Richmond, Virginia that uh, I work with as well. One of the women involved with them actually is a in-home visiting nurse and she has clients in my area. So even though they work primarily in Richmond and Petersburg, she's out here so she can pick it up for me and take it down there, which has been pretty great. Um, their demographic that they feed is generally the homeless. And so that solves the problem of getting good new quality nutrition to that population. And they don't have to figure out how to cook it themselves because if I give a homeless man 10 pounds of produce and a dozen eggs, what's he going to do with that? It's not practical. And so we, by forming these partnerships with the other community organizations, we've kind of practically solved that problem. So that's been really great. Really great. And so as you have grown in this model, um, and I know there's so much more that you that you do with uh, the Women's Earth Alliance and, and seed rematriation and indigenous, you know, cultivation practices, but have there been mentors for you or models you have followed at all? I know of one other program in sort of central Oregon that is similar. I think my biggest mentors probably are actually from the Women's Earth Alliance. Um, I've been so fortunate to be able to go through that accelerator program this year and be able to connect and collaborate with all of those women. They are fascinating and so wise. And it was a good program because we were able to connect really on a more, or on a deeper level and learn from each other. And, um, 
So yeah, it was, the, and they're all women that are in grassroots solutions to problems concerning food security or foods, you know, food sovereignty, environment, water, energy, all of that sort of stuff. So it was great because we're all kind of in the same realm, but all so different. So I would say probably the People's Project, which is um, Pandora Thomas in the Bay Area, Marin County, she has informed some of my decision making this year in a huge way. And Tasha Phonics um, from Blacks mm -hmm. Organizing for Self-Sufficiency. And they're out of St. Louis, uh, Missouri. And she's kind of the one that made me put my big, big girl pants on and not be afraid of saying food apartheid because I was afraid. I wanted to walk and walk gingerly around all of these issues that were really important. And I was afraid to really call it like it is because I was afraid of scaring away volunteers or donors or what have you. And it took me a bit to really get comfortable in that. But she was a huge inspiration to me as well. There, right? Like to see what you are doing on the ground in Virginia and it radiating out further and further from where you dropped this pebble into this lake, as it were, and we are seeing that ripple out effect, to know that you're connected with women doing similar work with similar ethos and, um, you know, kind of ethical cosmologies, as it were, uh, you know, in St. Louis and in the Bay Area and the one I know in Oregon, that's where we start to see this web of connection and like-minded cultivation come together. Like that's where we start to see change on a cultural and global level. Yeah, actually we, uh, um, we don't just help this area. So we send seeds all over the place. Um, I just packed a bag of seeds for uh, Black Yield up in Baltimore recently. Uh, we've got, our seeds have gone to Puerto Rico, mushroom plugs to Puerto Rico, uh, essential food and medicine in Oakland, California. Um, so we have access to a bounty, a beautiful bounty of natural ally, plant allies for natural medicine. And so uh, Xochitl Moreno, I've been collecting um, things like turkey tails and violets and all sorts of things like that, all sorts of natural medicine and drying them and sending them to her because that things that might not be available in an urban setting or might be polluted or contaminated with pollutants. We've uh, sent seeds to the, uh, the Cherokee Nation, Tar Rebecca Jim with the Cherokee Nation, Tar Creek, Oklahoma, uh, all over the place. They, Lewiston, the uh, Tuscarora Reservation up there, our, our seeds have gone everywhere and they are also sent free of charge to anyone that needs them that is growing for mutual aid or community feeding. And it's, it's really beautiful to see how many different places they have gone. Yeah. You know, in the seed work you're doing, which is clearly, you know, a whole other branch and could be it's, you know, could be the only branch you're working from, but it's not. Uh, what about what portion of your work does that constitute at this point? And how many are you growing all the seed plants for seed yourself or are, is that a shared endeavor too yet? Yeah, so all the seeds are actually grown on the farm here. We have one garden that's dedicated just for seeds. And then if there's a particularly beautiful plant that matures early or the fruits are actually really great, I actually take you know construction flagging, the orange flagging. We actually take those and tie them on the plants so that the volunteers know not to touch those plants and let them go to full maturity. So we do do that. Um, which limits the number of varieties that I can grow, which is kind of a bummer, but it's important to keep open pollinated heirloom seeds separate um, or you know pure as we can, and nothing's going to be pure. And that's the wonderful adaptive uh, qualities of heirloom seeds and why they are so great. But we try to keep things good. I have some seeds that um, are not for that are particularly rare, and they are not for anyone else like Cossack corn. And they're basically almost extinct. So those sorts of things, we have a couple of freezers out in the barn that are just for seeds. And we're actually gonna be doing a seed library coming up this year. We're gonna do a, subs a subscription service to those that can afford it. So they'll get like a little something neat every month in the mail. Um, 
something different to grow that's appropriate for their region and um, the time of year. And then we will be, um, that will be funding the seed library that people can come out to on Wednesdays and Sundays, which are our normal farm work days here. Nice. And at this point, how many volunteers do you have? It depends on the day. It kind of varies from month to month. Um, usually we only have about, in the summertime, there's about a dozen people here. Actually, that, came, that continued up until mid-November. But right now we're taking a break for my sanity. Um, we got the high tunnel is built and there's, we have chickens and, or chickens and ducks in the high tunnel fertilizing the ground in there because part of it's using, used for growing and then part of it's used for starting plants. And so we kind of move things around. And then last month we got, we had volunteers come and take down the old seed garden because it had done a couple of seasons for us and that, that land needs to be arrested. So we have what's called the poop shoot. And that is all these little baby quails and uh, chickens and whatnot in mobile coops that move up and down the area that will be our new garden. So we do, we get, uh, there's no growing like tr perfectly traditional way of managing the wildlife and whatnot through, the, through an area, um, but we do, do use controlled burns and we do, um, use the animals to kind of mimic the wildlife fertilizing an area, but they're just in little chicken tractors moving up and down that area. So once they're done, we're going to let it sit and then the grass will grow up a little bit and then we set fire to it and that will be prepared for our new garden bed in the spring. So we kind of move things around and then one of our old vegetable gardens will become the new seed garden that, um, because we want, the strongest and best suited plants to survive the ones that can be very thrifty on what what is bioavailable to them at any given time so we want to make sure that the ones that can struggle through it and produce well those are the ones that are saved you clearly have so much going on in your work and in your head and in your, <laughs> in your, in your hopes for what, uh, what this work can actually affect in our world. And, you know, when you, when you think about this last, I don't know, five, 10 years, and as you have evolved into this current iteration of this puzzle, that is all of your endeavors put together, um, what are your greatest joys in this work, Amy Rose? What 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 moments or um, you know measures bring you the greatest joy right now? Oh man, I think honestly, seeing the we have children volunteers that come, and seeing the children kind of step into their own little personhood and their own, they become a gardener in their own right or a forager in their own right. It's been really amazing because we have volunteers that bring their children on a regular basis and they will be set to task um, sorting and packaging seeds, which has been great. And picking vegetables, the little hands, we joke that the little hands pick the small stuff well, so they get set to processing ground cherries and whatnot, or small little small peppers and things like that. And also my children will take them into the woods and teach them to forage, which has been great. And uh, this summer, the most amazing thing happened. My six-year-old son got a couple of baskets and his scissors and took a little girl that is a year or two older than him into the woods to go forage mushrooms and plants. And they come back and they don't ever, he, know, he knows never to eat anything until I've inspected everything. So he lays out this bounty in the half bushel basket that he brought back for me to look at. And the two of them are sitting there all excited with their scissors and they lay it all out. And he starts, he separates them all and starts pointing to each thing, explaining to me what it is that he knows what it is. And I just realized my father is still alive in this work. He's long gone, but those things that he taught me as a child are now teaching other children. And that was really, oh my goodness, I'm gonna cry. That was the most meaningful thing to me. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Mm. 
Is there anything else you would like to add for, for listeners to, um, to, to know about what you're doing and its importance in this world as gardeners and uh, people of our places? Amy Rose. Oh, man. Um, just get your hands in the dirt. This year, hopefully, we're going to be adding a juvenile um, juvenile justice diversion program with uh, one of my friends is a public defender here at the county. And um, hopefully, we are going to be crafting a plan to work with the um, state's attorney here in in the county and try to keep juvenile offenders out of the system and offer a measure of garden therapy to them as well. And I think just, it's so good for you. Just get your hands in the dirt. I think everyone needs to, if you can, if you have the ability to, I know there's websites where you can be connected with um, people that have land to garden. I can't remember the name of them off the top of my head, but I do know that there are a few of them. But um, yeah, find a way, even if it's just with a potted plant or potted lavender plant or something like that, there is comfort in watching something, beauty and watching something like that grow and go through its life cycles. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. And um, thank you for your, your voice and your maybe workaholic, but passionate <laughs> work in this world. Dakagwe, you're welcome. Thank you. Amy Rose Fole is a mother, a farmer, and a big thinker. As the executive director and founder of the multifaceted Virginia Free Farm at Spotted Pig Hauler in Kent's Store, Virginia, she is looking to reimagine the food shed of her world and ours. See more about all the facets of the Virginia Free Farm, from growing to sewing to sharing to satellite farms sprouting, at virginiafreefarm.org. Listen in again next week when it's California Native Plant Week here in the California Floristic Province and Cultivating Place visits with the California Native Plant Society to talk openly about how this environmental organization is striving with heart and head to meet this cultural moment and all Californians more intentionally and inclusively. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, and the podcast and its outreach is listener-supported over at CultivatingPlace.com. Our producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Thank you.